Well, I want to start off today's sermon with maybe some strange comments. We need to take back sin. We need to advocate for the reality of sin. We need to teach sin. We need to preach sin. And I'm sure the vast majority of sitting here actually embrace the reality of sin. But I'm also sure that the vast majority of our culture rejects sin. Obviously, we too often ourselves try to ignore our sin, try to downplay its significance. After all, sinners often do their best to soften the sin in their lives. But you see, the challenge is clear. If one admits that they sin, that they are inherently selfish, that they are broken, then that leads to the immediate conclusion that we need somebody who can help us deal with our sin, to help us get rid of our sin and to heal our brokenness. In 1973, psychologist Carl Menninger wrote a book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. In his chapter titled, The Disappearance of Sin, an eyewitness account, he gives this scathing critique of our modern thinking. He said, in all of the laments and reproaches made by our seers and prophets, one misses the mention of sin. A word which used to be a veritable watchword for prophets. It was a word once in everyone's mind, but now rarely, if ever, is heard. Doesn't mean that no sin is involved in all of our troubles. Sin with I in the middle. Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty perhaps of a sin that could be repented and repaired and atoned for? Is it only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Wrong things are being done, we know. Tares are being sown in the wheat field at night. But is no one responsible, no one answerable for these facts? Anxiety and depression we all acknowledge. And even vague guilt fillings. But has no one committed any sins? Where, indeed, did sin go? What became of it? He wrote those words 40 plus years ago. How much worse is the situation today? The typical apology today is, I'm sorry if you got hurt. I regret that you got your feelings hurt. The action is always on the other person. It's the non-apology apology. apology. No personal responsibility. No, it's my fault. No, I sinned. No, I did wrong. No, I lied. No, I was selfish. People go to great lengths to hide their sin, to rationalize their sin, or to simply deny sin. But here's the rub, see, here's why we must stand clear on the reality and the pervasiveness of sin. Because if there is no sin, there's no need for a Savior. Who needs a Savior if there's nothing to be saved from? That short video we watched at the offertory told the gospel clearly and simply. It said the reality is that we are all slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves in need of good news. It said that we need to repent, that Jesus died on the cross, taking what we deserve so we can get what he deserved. It closed by saying we're saved by grace. We are slaves no more. I liked the video. I thought it was well done. 
But as much as that short video resounded with the truth, as much as that short video made us appreciate our Savior and all that He did for us, so much more and so many more just totally reject the whole premise of the video. The vast majority just simply and completely deny that they are slaves to sin. Sin is the furthest thing from their mind. Well, it's not that they don't admit to doing wrong. Of course they'll admit that they do wrong. But they try to deny at the same time that what they did wrong is not really in the category of sin. Because you see, sin isn't just doing something wrong. Sin is doing something wrong that offends God. No standard, no sin, no Savior. Folks, one of the truths that binds us together in reality, in fellowship, is that we were all slaves to sin, slaves to death. That is until Jesus Christ saved us by his grace and through his cross. So please open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 1 and follow along there as I read, starting at verse 5. Nine times in these few verses, John is going to use the word sin. Why? Because correctly thinking about Jesus, we must correctly think about sin. 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 5. This is the message we heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Father, we pray now, so thankful for your word, so thankful for the truth. We pray that your Holy Spirit, who gave us this word, would now use this word to challenge us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we see in verse 5 is that God is the standard. John says that this is the message that he heard from Jesus and is now proclaiming in his letter. These are not John's words. These are Jesus' words. This concept didn't come from the thoughts of John, but from the very teaching of Christ. John here uses the perfect tense when he uses the word heard. The perfect tense means that the action is completed in the past, but the results of the action continue on in full effect. So there was one time in the past where John heard this message from Jesus, but the effects of what he heard 
is continuing on in full effect this day. And it is this message. It is still this powerful message that is still working, that is still important and invaluable. It is this message that we are still continually proclaiming and declaring. The first point of that message is that God is the standard. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Now, God is light means that God is pure. God is perfect. God is powerful. God is the revealer. God is splendor and truth. That God is holy. In God, there is no darkness at all. None. No darkness. There's no sin, no evil, no bad thoughts, no bad attitudes, no selfishness, no lies, no weakness, no hiding, no wrong. God is light, holiness, pure. And in him is no darkness, nothing wrong at all. See, talking about God as light is a reoccurring theme in the Bible. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Isaiah 9 Two, speaking of Jesus, says the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. John uh, 1, uh, 4-9 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He is not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus said in John 12:35 through 36, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. See, our God is a standard. Jesus is the measuring stick. They set the rules. They set the requirements. They are the benchmark. They are the light. Everything we do, everything, when standing in comparison to God, does not measure up. Our very best moments of light are still shadowed in darkness. We are at best just a poor reflection of the light of our God. Once we truly grasp that God is light, that he is perfect holiness, light, That God is the standard. We quickly realize that we can never match up. No amount of good deeds ever done by the most wonderful person comes even close to measuring up. Because our God is light. He is the standard. So our culture says, well, that's okay. Because God grades on a curve, right? If you do more light things than dark things, then you get in. Folks, that's not even possible. It is not even possible. 
Think about this with me. Because the very act of doing good deeds to earn your status with God makes those good deeds darkness. Because fundamentally you are denying Jesus Christ. You are denying your need for the Savior. You're rejecting the Son of God. Doing good deeds to earn favor with God actually comes from hearts of pride and selfishness. I can do this on my own. I don't need a Savior. Thinking that way, that you don't need Christ, that you can save your own souls, what you think are deeds of light, actually deeds of darkness. God is light. God is the standard. Next we see in verses 6 through 10, three, if we say statements, three of them that introduce three wrong understandings of sin in light of the standard of God. Sin is real. The first, if we say statement, is in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, the first scenario is of a person who's claiming to be a believer. They say that they have fellowship with God. They say that they are united with God, that his goals are their goals, his priorities are their priorities. They claim that they are bonded together in an intimate Friendship, relationship with God. But their life doesn't show that. Instead of walking in the light of obedience to God, this person walks in darkness and does not practice the truth. What does John call that person? He calls him a liar. The idea of walking here is of continuous and a persistent pattern of life. Walking in the light is not perfection, but that continuous, consistent pattern of one's life that is marked by fellowship with God and loving obedience to his word. Walking in darkness is a continuous, consistent pattern of one's life. If you're seeking your own stuff first, your priorities, your goals, your glory, you obey God when it fits into what you want. You obey God when it's convenient For your outcome, you say you have fellowship with God, but in reality, God's just another person in your life that you are using to meet your own needs. God's not your savior, he's your servant. God's not your king, he's your attendant. God's not your master, he's your doormat. There are many people who call themselves Christians who think they're following God when in actually all they want God to do is to follow them. They've not taken their sin seriously. They discount sin and its effect on their spiritual lives. This verse is telling us that you do not have fellowship with God if you are still the ruler of your life. Sin is real. Our darkness is real. Just saying you know God, just saying you know all these facts about Jesus, but not taking the reality of your sinful heart and actions seriously only leaves you in need of true salvation. It is the blood of Jesus, the Son, that cleanses us from all sin. This morning, right now, let me ask you a question. Do you have fellowship with God? Do you have an intimate friendship 
relationship with God? Are his priorities your priorities? I'm not asking that if sometime in your past you prayed a prayer. I'm asking about right now in your life, this moment, would you describe your relationship with God as fellowship, bonded together? Right now in your life, would you say that you and God are so bonded together that what he wants is first in your life? Is the continuous, consistent pattern of your life walking in the light as he, our Jesus, is in the light? The next, if we say, statement is in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This person is saying, as so many in our culture does today, that they have no sin. It's not that they're saying that they're perfect, but, but that what they do wrong has nothing to do with God, has no accountability with God. They say the principle of sin has no effect on my life. I need no Savior. Whereas the first person discounted the reality of sin, this person denies it. They say that sin is of no eternal consequence. Multiple billions of people are walking planet Earth today denying sin. Denying that it has any eternal consequence. Denying that there is a God who is the standard. And what's the root denial of this sin? What's the root of this? The Bible tells us it is self-deception. Verse 8 says, we deceive ourselves. The root of the denial of sin is thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. The root of the denial of sin is that we do not see ourselves clearly. Our self-deception has clouded out our spiritual discernment. Reality is lost in our self-deception. And the consequence of that self-deception is that truth is lost. Instead of living in the truth, living in some type of fantasy land of our own making. See, the truth is, is that there is sin. That we are sinners. That there is a God who is the standard. That is the truth. And no amount of self-deception changes the truth. No amount of wishing it wasn't so doesn't make it so. So think about this now. The reality is that billions of people are not living in reality. They're living in a fantasy world of their own self-deception. And folks, this can happen to any of us. Maybe not so much about this example, about the reality of sin, but self-deception is the root of a whole lot of denial of what's real. We must fight hard to live in reality. To live in the truth. So what is reality? What is the truth? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, that God's word is the truth. See, living in reality, living in the truth, Living a life not marked by self-deception means living a life based on God's word. It means living a life in a relationship with Jesus. Folks, one of the things in my life, one of the internal motivators in my life is not to be self-deceived. How tragic, how sad 
is self-deception. I want to know the truth. I want to live the truth. But here's the catch. Knowing the truth and the reality of sin and its consequences is not something you learn in a class. It's not even something you'll learn in this sermon. Because it's revealed by the Holy Spirit. John 16.8 says that one of the works of the Spirit is that He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Real followers of Christ have been convicted by the Holy Spirit, convincing us of the truth that we are sinners, that God is pure righteousness, and that there is a judgment day coming. When those two realities, our sinfulness and God's pure righteousness, will be dealt with. Verse 9 tells us how to respond when that conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we recognize we are sinners separated from God. Verse 9 tells us how to respond. It says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, on that judgment day, when our sin and God's righteousness are dealt with, there is only one answer that will hold up. Only one. And that's Jesus Christ. His blood, His righteousness, His atoning sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus has become for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Folks, that's the truth. The last, if we say, statement is in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. The first person discounted sin. The second person denied that sin has any eternal consequence. This person just flat out says they don't sin. The word sin here is in the perfect tense. Remember that. Remember we learned earlier what the perfect tense means, that this action completed in the past but the results of the action are continuing in full effect. So this person is claiming that they have never sinned in the past, and the effect of their not sinning is continuing in full effect. See, this is not self-deception like the second person. This is willful, outright denial of sin. This is not lying to yourself, but calling God a liar. This is blatant and defiant, in-your-face, denial of the truth, of any need of God. No sin, no standard, no Savior. But, oh, beloved, we do sin. Beloved, we are sinners, and Jesus is the answer. As John now addresses his readers, he calls them my little children. This is the first of seven times that he uses that phrase. This is a term of endearment and fatherly love. John sees those to whom he's writing to as his spiritual children and he as their spiritual father. Now, in light of all this discussion of sin, John wants to make sure that his readers know the truth. He has already said in verse 7 and in verse 9, but now in the first two verses of chapter 2, John again clearly says the answer, the only answer to our sin problem is Jesus. John acknowledges in these verses that not only do we have to come to God to deal with the penalty of our sin, we have to come to God to deal with the power of sin in our lives. 
The gospel is just not about dealing with our sinful standing before God, but also about dealing with the present way we are living our lives. Because, see, Jesus is our advocate in verse 1, and our atonement in verse 2, not only to destroy the penalty of sin, but the power of sin over a believer's life. Romans 6 teaches us we're no longer slaves to sin. Not just securing our eternity, but changing the present reality of our everyday lives. So let's look at these two descriptions of what Jesus does for us. First, he's our advocate. He's our helper. He's our counsel who speaks in our defense to the Father. The word advocate used to be applied to lawyers. The word John uses here is the very same word that Jesus used when he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. It means one called alongside. When a person was summoned to court, he would take an advocate with him. Someone who would stand by his side. Someone who would plead his case. Jesus represents us before God's throne as our advocate. He helps us when we sin. He represents believers before God's throne. And the fact of his sacrifice makes possible the forgiveness of our sins. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. So, what is, so, so how does this advocate go? Does he say, hey God the Father, look. Look how good. Look how nice Joe is. Don't you just want to forgive him? Now you see, verse 2 clearly says what he advocates for us. He advocates on our behalf his substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. So he says to God the Father, hey, there's Joe. He's sinning again. He's fallen short of your glory. But I've come to advocate for him. I've come to offer my righteousness in place of his sinfulness. My sacrifice for his sin. Verse 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you look that up in the dictionary, that word propitiation, you could get the wrong idea of its meaning. The dictionary tells us that to propitiate means to appease someone who is angry. Now, if you wrongly apply this to Christ and God, you could get a horrible picture of this angry God about to destroy the world, and a loving Savior giving himself to appease this irate God. That is not the biblical picture of salvation. Now, certainly, God is angry at sin. In his infinite holiness, his wrath is poured out against sin. But the Bible reassures us, John 3.16, right? For God so loved, not hated, the world, now, the word propitiation doesn't mean the appeasing of an angry God. Rather, it means the satisfying of God's holiness. Satisfying his wrath against sin. God is light, and therefore he cannot, and he will not close his eyes to sin. He's the standard. No darkness at all. He's just not going to gloss over sin like it's no big deal. And God is love. He loves us. He wants to save sinners. So how then can a holy God uphold his own justice and pure holiness and still 
share his love and forgiveness of sinners? The answer is propitiation. The answer is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The answer is that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. At the cross, God in his holiness judged sin by accepting as payment for our sins the death of his son. And then God in his love offers to us Jesus Christ as our Savior. God was just when he punished sin. And he is also loving that he offers forgiveness through Jesus and what he did at Calvary. Because Jesus died for his people, he satisfied the justice of God. And because Christ lives for us at the right hand of God, he applies his sacrifice to our needs day by day. The gospel not only deals with our sinful standing before God, but also deals with the present way we're living our life. Because Jesus is our advocate in verse 1, our atonement in verse 2, not only to destroy the penalty of sin so that we may have eternal life, but the power of sin over a believer's life is destroyed, giving us the ability to walk in the light. As Jesus is in the light. Author and speaker Brennan Manning has an amazing story about how he got his name Brennan. While growing up, his best friend was Ray. The two of them did everything together. They bought a car together as teenagers. They double dated together. They went to school together and so forth. They even enlisted in the army together. They went to boot camp together. They fought on the front lines together. One night in a foxhole, Brennan was reminiscing about the old days in Brooklyn while Ray listened and ate a chocolate bar, suddenly a live grenade came into the foxhole. Ray looked at Brennan, smiled, dropped his chocolate bar, and threw himself on the live grenade. It exploded, killing Ray, but Brennan's life was spared. When Brennan became a priest, he was instructed to take the name of a saint. He thought of his friend, Ray Brennan. And he took the name Brennan. Years later, he went to visit Ray's mother's home in, in uh, Brooklyn. They sat up late one night having tea when Brennan asked her, Do you think Ray loved me? And Mrs. Brennan got out of the couch, shook her finger in the front of Brennan's face and shouted, What more could he have done for you? Brennan said at that moment, he experienced an epiphany. He imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus Christ, wondering, does God really love me? And Jesus, Mary's the mother of Jesus, pointing to her son, saying, what more could he have done for you? You know, there's an answer to that question. Nothing. There's nothing more he could have done. He did it all. Everything. Taking our place. Taking our sin. If you have never this morning put your trust in Jesus as the Savior of your life, don't let these next few minutes go by without talking to God right now. Give Him your life in exchange for the life of Jesus Christ. And today, believer, God loves you. Are you walking in the light? I'm not talking about doubling down and trying harder. I'm talking about abiding more. Walk in the light as Jesus 
is in the light. Jesus on the cross not only took the penalty of our sin, but broke the power of sin over our lives. Is that how you live your life? What's the one thing that you could change that would help you better live out the truth that the power of sin is broken in your life? Let's take a moment this morning. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word. We thank you so much that God is our standard. That sin is real, but we are not left to wallow in that sin. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate, our propitiation, went on that cross to die for us, to give us new life and new hope. Lord, I pray that every single person in this room believes that and lives that and has done the great exchange, giving up their life, their priorities, their goals into Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ will then stand in front of the Father and say, that one's mine. My blood that was shed covers the sins of that one. I have given him life. And Lord, today, for us that are believers, apply this truth to us. Challenge us. Help us to see all that you've done for us and the beauty and the wonder, the truth of the gospel. And then help us to live it. To live out who you are, walking in the light. In Jesus' name, amen.